webmasterradio.fm Hello! Born Life Gone! If you think webmasterradio.fm is smoking now, well, you ain't seen nothing yet, man. September 15, 16, and 17, it's a Search Bash Jamaica. Come to Jamaica for one of the biggest bashman party. Come rub elbows with the web's greatest marketing minds. <laughs> Dude, that's great. You and a friend lying on the beach, sipping rum punch, and get a full body all around. Mm. It is Irie, man. <laughs> Find all the info at searchbash.com. Air, transportation, hotel, photos, and registration. Come hang out with the coolest people online at digital marketing. Yeah, we be jamming, man. Jamming with your webmaster radio show host. This is Greg. I need a beer in Ireland. Hook up with some old friends. <laughs> it's a life experience you'll never forget. Excellent. Search Bash. Jamaica. In case you haven't been listening, I'll repeat myself. It's a happening thing in a Negro Jamaica. To register and get all pertinent information, go to searchbash.com. Seize and Seckless, get out and come down to Jamaica Search Bash 2006. Hosted by a Webmaster Radio.fm. Like now, I'm ready to go. Make an impact on your interactive marketing through performance, advertising, community outreach, and technology. Be captivated by the people who are leading the wave of change in the online marketplace. This is who AdTech is. AdTech Connect, your weekly radio show. Get behind the scenes with industry giants. Be privy to the insider track. Witness the newest technologies. Make sure you're in the scene each week with AdTech Connect. You're connected now with your host. Welcome to AdTech Connect. This is Susan Bratton, your host for the show. And this show, this week, is themed media innovation. First up is Mark Steffens, who's the Vice President and General Manager of Avenue A Razorfish, runs the Central Region, and Tom Hespos, the President of Underscore Marketing. And we're going to dig into what's going on specifically around media today in the online industry. So let's get Mark on the phone. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. Great. Thanks for coming on the show. So uh, you're going to be speaking. You spoke in San Francisco, but you're also speaking in Chicago on media innovation. Is that right? Yes. Great. And so uh, one of the things that, um, that you have been working on is a concept called media stacking. And I want to mm-hmm. get into that, but let, let's just talk about your background because it's diverse. Uh, you have worked at a lot of different agencies. When we met uh, 10 years ago, probably 1996 or so, you were working uh-huh. at Transphere International, and you were their key media guy. Yep. And then I you made a move the to... What did you say? Transfer. Say again? I actually started the media department at Transphere. You started it. it. Gosh, yep. that's great. And that was back when I was selling print advertising, and you were buying traditional media. That is so true. It was before there really was much online media. <laughs> And then uh, you left and you went to what at the time was called DSW, Euro, RSCG, one of the craziest names in our business. Well, back, now you're back with Avenue A Razorfish, which is another hodgepodge name, isn't it? That's, yeah, that's a pretty crazy one. <laughs> <laughs> and was that, when you went to Euro, was that when the web stuff really started for you? It was because um, 
the primary motivation for my making that move was to actually work on the Intel business. And Intel was a very early pioneer in all of the interactive stuff. They invested pretty significant amounts of money in it, and they did a lot of testing and learning around that. And they were willing to do it because it was pretty essential to their overall brand, which was a technology brand and very cutting edge. So they felt like they had to have a major presence online. So a lot of the stuff we did kind of shaped and formed um, a lot of the stuff that happened later in the industry, quite frankly. I remember that. And what was it like for you when you when you took that cha- when you made that change and you went to Euro and you took on the Intel business? You, did you do it specifically so you could get into web? Like, did you see the web happening and go, "Oh my God, I have to be there"? Or was it the kind of thing where you had an opportunity and it seemed like, did you know what was going to happen? You know what? I saw the possibilities of it because the thing that fascinated me about the web was just the ability to be able to connect people on a global basis. And, you know, the a company like Intel really, again, was kind of, kind of, on, the, on, the cutting, kind of on the cutting edge of that. Oops, hang now, on one second. My computer is going crazy. What is your okay. computer doing? It's I hear a girl oh, in the background. Do you have a girl there? It's a voice recognition software. Voice recognition. It's not Rocio. You're not working from home. No. <laughs> <laughs> voice recognition. So, you're, so basically, a hot chick is chatting in your ear pretty much all day. You know, it's a funny thing because I've yet to figure out exactly how to use it because most of the time I'm in places where there's a lot of background noise. Yeah. So when you're giving it commands, it doesn't quite get it. Was that on your phone or your computer? No, it's my, it's my laptop. It's a, actually laptop. a gateway okay. tablet PC. Oh, of course. You, you like the techie stuff. That's a good I thing. Do. I do. All right, stuff. so you went to Euro and, and you knew the web was exciting to you. And you had to work out of Salt Lake for a while. Didn't you go back and forth to Salt Lake? Wasn't that kind of a big part of their business? That was a huge part of their business. And, well, you know, to be honest with you, the bigger part of their business was, quite frankly, the broadcast. Yeah. Because that's when they were doing the Intel Inside, and you had all those guys in the uh, fab suits kind of dancing around. Right. Um, you know, the, right, the, the dudes in the fab suits. They love the dudes in their in, oh, in yeah. their average because like, cause now they're in the in the blue dudes. What I don't know what they have next. But, oh, the blue man group. Yeah. Yeah, the blue guys are over now. I guess. Yeah, it's it's become a little bit more of a common man's campaign, a little bit more, which is probably a good move. I mean, the, the market has shifted significantly. And so, how how was Utah? You spent some time there. What, what does a six foot four black man? do in Utah other you than know stick out <laughs> like a sore thumb? Utah is great because I, I lived in Park City, and Park City is just a wonderful place. Oh, yeah. And, you know, phenomenal skiing, great people. Um, I, I love that place. I mean, to this day, when it comes to going skiing, I actually prefer to fly into Salt Lake and go skiing because it's so easy to get to uh, the slopes. Me too. Deer Valley is my, is, that's my hood. I love oh, that place. Amazing. Don't you? They, they pamper you so well there. The food is unbelievable. I know. <laughs> oh, and here's my favorite thing about Deer Valley. So I like, I, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an advanced intermediate skier on my best day. I'm not a great skier. But what they do at Deer Valley is um, they've invested gazillions of dollars into all that grooming equipment so yep. that every night they just they comb the mountains with those grooming machines. And they make every hill like corduroy. And my favorite thing in the world is to go after what I like to call the Virgin Roy. I get up and I am like, first, first chair. I am a first chair maniac. And I get up and I get down the top of the hill and I just go as fast as I can down that corduroy and I love it. What kind of skier are you? 
I am, I wouldn't say advanced intermediate. I would say intermediate, just because I don't Really? Yeah. Oh, I think, come on, you're such an athlete. There's no way you could be an intermediate skier. You know? You're just being nice. I tend to point my tips down and steer when I have to. Uh-huh. You're a and bomber. It tends to be a lot of fun doing it that way, but um, I would probably, I, intermediate's about right. It Good is. for you. Well, we're going to have to go to Deer Valley sometime. Get the uh, families I, together. That would be great. So let's keep I on with the, sto- the story, the history of Mark Steffens. You left Euro for Lot 21, which was at the time the hottest agency in the interactive space, I would say, yeah. wouldn't you? I, I would say so. I would definitely say so. And, you know, that was just a great move just because Lot 21 to this day has done things that are just now starting to become mainstream. Like a lot of the video stuff that you're seeing now of hotspots, we did right. that stuff. We did, you know, uh, buy within the banner stuff. Um, again, a lot of that stuff is starting to start to come out and become a little bit more mainstream, but mm-hmm. we literally pioneered a lot of that stuff for um, a lot of our early clients, and it was just a fun place to be. Just the, the corporate culture was just incredibly good in terms of fostering innovation, and, it, you know, that was just a fun time to actually be in San Francisco overall. It was just an amazing time. <laughs> And you and Lot 21 turned into Kara as the yeah. acquisition happened. Yeah. And at what point did you say, I'm going to leave and go to Avenue A Razorfish? How did that happen? And now you moved from San Francisco to Chicago. So mm-hmm. that was pretty catac- That was the most cataclysmic move of your career. Why would you do it? Uh, well, a couple of reasons. One is that in between there, I actually took a couple of years off. Nice. Oh, yeah. Well, it was one of those things where, you know, cashed out with Lot 21, and there was really not a whole lot going on with the industry at that time. It was mm-hmm. kind of the dark period, if you will. What year? 2001? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yep. I golfed and cooked. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it was just one of those things where, and, and Kara is a, an amazing organization just in terms of um, looking at media holistically and doing the offline and the online side of things. Mm-hmm. I think one of the greater challenges at the time, though, was um, really emphasizing interactive. You know, one of the great challenges with integrated organizations is that interactive is such a different animal. And um, in a lot of cases, you know, um, while the people at the top were very oriented towards the belief that interactive is extremely important, it will eventually be the the future, in the trenches, um, you know, there's still a lot of network broadcast that was being bought. So when it came to kind of divvying up the budget, that was a huge challenge, Yeah, an absolute challenge. You were constantly bummed because you saw this big, big gold bucket and you got a drop. Uh, That's, yeah. And you know what? That was (laughs) kind of typical for most clients, but we had some clients that literally, you know, should have been spending, you know, a good 20 to 30% of their overall budget on online because that's where their audience was. Mm -hmm. Um, And those those were kind of the big challenges. So that and combined with, you know, the fact that the industry was kind of turning down, decided to take a couple of years off. Mm -hmm. And then an opportunity at Avenue A cropped up, and it was in Chicago, which is where I'm from. Grew up, born and raised here. And um, decided to uh, move back to Chicago. And I got to tell you, it's been wonderful. It really has. Well, and also, your son, your son, is it named, is his name Alejandro? It is. Yeah, good for me. Dang, all the brain cells are not completely trashed. And so your mom and dad are there, right? Yep. So they get to be with their grandson, who they probably absolutely adore. They do. And now how old is he? I'm afraid to ask. 
He's he'll turn twelve in July. Twelve. Gosh, yeah. that's great. Yep. Yeah, almost a teenager. How's he doing? He's doing well, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Last time I talked to you, he was kicking major booty in basketball. Is that still his sport of he's choice? De- that's still his sport of choice. Yeah. He's still dedicated to that, and I'm trying to get him to play a little bit more golf, and he did a big snowboarding camp this winter, so he's, nice. he's starting to get into that a little bit more, which would be great. Do more more variation. And so the, the lore of Avenue Razorfish was what for you? Like, what was the single thing that you said, this is my place? Well, I think, you know, I've always had a lot of respect for Avenue A, and actually back in the day, Lot 21 and Avenue A actually considered, you know, combining forces. So, mm-hmm. you know, I actually went out to Seattle. This was like 90, 99, 2000 or so, and, and kind of looked at the early versions of Atlas, which at the time were just basically a bunch of linked spreadsheets in a demo mode. Yeah. Um, so I've always had a lot of respect for people there. And the thing about Avenue A is it's very it's a very data centric company. Yeah. Uh, the addition of Razorfish uh, kind of gave it a whole new, new dimension in terms of dealing with creative and also just kind of dealing with the whole experience side of the business. And the combination has worked extremely well. Um, I will say that. And the scale, I think, is the other thing that really attracted me um, to Avenue A Razorfish is the ability to you know, take on large clients and make a huge difference in their business. And were there any particular clients that you couldn't wait to get your hands on? Um, you know, actually, JCPenney is one of our major clients out of uh, the central region, and, you know, they're doing a lot of stuff in retail that I think will significantly change the game. So they're a fun client to work with. They, they are looking for innovative solutions, and, uh, you know, they sold. Last year, they sold over a billion dollars. <laughs> Yeah, they're ki- they're kind of a company that went downhill, and I sense just I'm I'm hearing a lot of buzz about J C Penney. Oh yeah, uh, it's like they're having a a bit of a renewal. Is that right? I, well, they turned the company around because they were, you know, in in sort of dire straits, and they've turned it around in a way that is you know just phenomenal. And you know now you know J C Penney has kind of like a whole new life, quite frankly, and it's kind of like you know they're. If you look at Sears, you know, Sears is in a situation where there um, there isn't an identity. You know, I think one of the interesting things about J.C. Penney is that they kind of stuck to that middle ground, if you will. Um, but they're expanding that middle ground and kind of changing the definition of that middle ground, um, while some of the other players kind of either went really low, like Walmart, yep. or Target tried to go pretty high end. Yep. And so that kind of opened up the middle uh, for JCPenney. And again, they've been able to kind of reclaim that area. And now they're kind of recreating that middle ground. And then, you know, Sears just kind of fell out of sight. You know? And then, you yeah. know, the question is, you know, Sears, Kmart, what kind of identity, what, you know, how do you think of that company? JCPenney have a pretty clear idea of, um, of what you're getting. And, you know, even that, the perception is starting to change and change in a very positive way. So we're really happy about that terms of the direction that it's going. Does JCPenney have a jingle or a tagline or anything like that? Because I can't think of one. It's all inside. It's all inside. Can you sing it for me? I can't not sing it. I, I, I sing like a frog, but it's usually... You do? It's, yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. <laughs> Funny. I know. I have my good days and my bad days. All right. So um, we've gotten you to Avenue A Razorfish, and your title is Vice President General Manager. Mm-hmm. Is the, and, and is that of 
of the whole bloody mess in the central region, or is that like you own Avenue A, or are you still focused on just the media people? Like, what's your cut on that? I focus on the media, the media and the analytics side of the business. Okay. The web dev side of the business has, you know, sort of a a separate general manager, if you will. And who is that? Uh, Her name is Julie Roth Novak, and she is actually on a maternity leave, but she'll be back in another four weeks. I know her. Gorgeous girl. Yeah. Snappy glasses. Lives in New York. Yeah. No, she's here now. Oh, she lives here. Okay. Got it. Yes. Very impressive woman. Yes, she and is. Good for her for having a baby. More, more Julies in the world. <laughs> I love it. So now you're doing something called media stacking, and mm-hmm. you've been coming to ad tech and sharing your learning about that. Would you tell our listeners about it? Well, it's it's media stacking, and and you know we're we're kind of in broadening it to really kind of encompass you know touch point stacking, and and what it is is really looking at all your different touch points. So, you know, in a typical um, advertising engagement, you may have a search campaign going, you may have display advertising going, you may have um, an SEO um, project underway, you may have data fees going on with paid inclusion. Of course, there's going to be offline stuff. You're going to have an email campaign. Some more progressive clients may be doing mobile um, you know, that possibly um, IPTV, all those different things have are typically tracked very separately. Mm-hmm. So you have your different campaigns, you kind of look at your results, and you look at your results on a campaign-by-campaign basis. What media stacking or touchpoint stacking does is it looks at things holistically. And, you know, through the advent of third-party serving, kind of uh, acting as kind of a central backbone, you're actually able to look at the effects that one campaign has on the other. Like, for instance, search and web media, we've done a lot of um, testing to kind of understand the interaction between the two. And, you know, in, in a lot of cases, if you kind of optimize search alone, which, again, a lot of companies do, a lot of companies even contract with, uh, you know, separate um, SEM firms to actually do their search, and so they're optimizing the search based on keywords, phrases, and you know the, the revenue that it generates. One of the challenges with that is it doesn't look at the causal effects in terms of what may generate more searches. So you know the effect between web media campaigns and the search is you know a huge link- linkage. And what happens typically is search is usually the thing that tends to get the um, attributed sale. You know, search is very well known. It's kind of a hand raiser. You know, people are raising their hands, and it typically might be the last thing that they look at before they click and they actually go off and purchase something online. In some cases, it may be the last thing they look at before they purchase something offline. And so search gets a lot of credit for a lot of the actual sales when, in fact, it is a scaled thing where the search is obviously fed by some of the other advertising, and we can look at that and kind of understand the linkage and the effects of, let's say, a display media campaign and how that affects the number of searches and the conversion on the search so we can dial those amounts up in the right amount. So if you were looking at them separately, what you'll typically do is probably put more money into search and cut back money from web media when, in fact, what you need to do is keep your money, keep some of your money in web media and optimize your search a little bit based on exactly what your web media campaign is driving. So that's the basic concept of touchpoint stacking. I love it, and, and it makes complete sense. How, how-
how are you doing this? Are you doing this research with an you know an outside research company? Oh no, no, no. We do we do all of that in house. You do in house. Okay. Yeah. I mean, one of the benefits is that we, you know, we've run everything on Atlas. Yep, um, I love that Atlas platform. It's you gotta love that. And one of the benefits of Atlas is it really allows us to look at data in a lot of different ways. It also allows us to append data actually relatively easily. What's so, that mean? Well, it means that so just instead of just looking at one data source, we can look at multiple data sources and actually just append that information to the Atlas cookie. So we can we can. It's built that way from the ground up to allow us to actually do that. That's how you can know that someone uh, was affected by multiple media types. Yep. Okay. So it's a data warehouse. It, well, it, it can be data warehouse. Okay. It, it has the ability to do that, and we have actually have a BI group that actually that works mean? really well. Oh, okay, uh, really? Business intelligence, sorry. Business intelligence. <laughs> it actually okay. has that um, data warehousing function, and it can incorporate data from other sources as well. So it may not just be the advertising that we're third-party serving. It can incorporate client-side data. It can incorporate survey data, and we can get a much better picture of the consumer and what the consumer is actually doing and what the consumer is actually thinking by doing that. So you're definitely, you've always been a little bit of a numbers jockey, which is you're yeah. kind of one of your loves. You like it's, statistics. So you're, you're in piggy heaven at Avenue Razorfish, aren't you? I am. I really am. <laughs> it's, now, a very, it, it's a very data-driven company. and you uh, love? I do love that. And but the, the nice part about it is it's not just, because there are companies that are very data-centric, but they really get caught up in the numbers. And one of the things that I think really differentiates Avenue A Razorfish from other places is that the data is actionable. Um, it's one thing to kind of understand the data, to kind of take the data and report back on the data, but it's totally actionable in the sense that we take that data and look for some sort of insight and then apply that insight to make you know the campaigns work better or to help a to help a client understand their customer a little bit better and in some cases it may even factor back into some of the offline advertising in terms of maybe tweaking the messaging a little bit and in some cases we've actually ended up tweaking the product mix as well so it's kind of looking at all those different things that you can affect by being in a medium that allows you that ability to you know take data and then analyze it, gather some sort of insight, and then report back on that, and then do it in you know a very timely manner so that it can actually have an effect on the campaign that you're running. All right, so this is my wrap-up question about that. Uh-huh. Pretend that I am your media fairy, and I could wave my magic wand and give you anything you wanted, some key piece of data, um, a special program that would get you some information, um, a, a research project that looked like this. What would it be that you think could be, if you could just figure it out, if you could just get the answer, would like put your name in lights in the Wikipedia of the media universe? Well, you know, there are two things. One is just a question of time, but I'm a little impatient, and I wish that uh, we were at a point where most media was digital. <laughs> you know, everyone, no one disagrees. You know, back in the day, there were all sorts of arguments about whether that was going to happen. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can find anyone now that doesn't think that it's going to happen. So, so all your radio spots are as trackable, and your television spots are as trackable as your digital marketing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But, that's a that's, nice one. That, that, that to me would be just nirvana, and it's it's coming. It's definitely coming. You're seeing everything go digital with IPTV and video on yeah. demand, and all of that can eventually be tracked. Yeah. 
And that, to me, would really give you know the ability to really take a larger set of data and really kind of understand a, a consumer's true behavior. Um, and the the other thing, quite frankly, is the website. You know, one te- one thing that I'm really quite passionate on right now is just the fact that the website is a very powerful media vehicle, and a lot of companies don't look at it that way. They look at it as kind of a separate entity. Sometimes it's just an e-commerce platform. Uh, sometimes it's just kind of a brand platform or a brochure scenario, but they don't really incorporate in their media mix. And there's some there's some companies out there that have amazing amounts of web traffic. I was just looking at like the top 25 um, sites out there, and you know Yahoo's at the top of it. But you've got um, you know players like Target and Walmart, uh, Bank of America. <laughs> Wow. that are literally in the top 25 in terms of site traffic. And what would you want them to do? I mean, part of it is you're saying that it's just their thinking, their approach to it. But if you could fix one, if you call up B of A and say, look, guys, let me give you a little tip here. If you did this thing, it'd be so awesome. What would that thing be? Well, the thing is I think that they're not utilizing their dollars the right way. Okay. And, and they kind of look at... Most companies are siloed anyway, but they kind of look at, let's just say there's one, you know, advertising budget that they're utilizing. That's usually not true because it's usually divided by division, et cetera, but just to simplify things, let's just say that's the case. They don't really look at the overall exposure that they're getting from their websites. So, in fact, they're probably overspending in a lot of areas when, in fact, they're reaching a lot of these people on their websites, their customers, they're being, you know, there's there's a CRM message in there, but there's also a branding message, and they're not counting that frequency in the overall mix. So they don't know whether to heavy up or lighten up against these groups. So they're not looking at a pretty significant, you know, and again, when you're looking at, like, monthly uniques, and, you know, off the top of my head, I'm going to say that Walmart was well over $20 million. <laughs> You know, those aren't insignificant numbers, <laughs> Yes. To factor in. And so, in fact, you know, they might be overspending on broadcast and they might be able to put that money into something that could be a little bit more efficient. Maybe they move that money from broadcast to search. Got or maybe it. they move it into, you know, direct mail, not to, you know, be totally, you know, an interactive bigot. Um, Even though you are, and that was a total bullshit one. It's okay. I'm trying to be fun. I know. That was nice. But we, we know who you are. You can't hide it. I can't. Oh. I get it. Well, that that was a those two little insights were for anybody who spent the half an hour we've had together listening were probably really great food for thought for them too. I love that. I hope so. Um, we are going to go to a commercial break, and we're going to bring Tom Hespos, whom I know you also know, back yep, on the I do line. Indeed. And um, I hope that those going to Ad Tech Chicago will come to your session on media innovation. And I appreciate you coming on the show, Mark. It's always a delight. It's my pleasure, Susan. All right. We'll break now, and we'll be back in a minute. Okay. Bye. Sit tight and don't move. Ad Tech Connect. We'll be right back. Google AdSense. How do I earn from thee? Let me count the ways. Google, you enable me to show targeted ads complementing my site so my visitors keep clicking throughout the day and night. It was so easy to apply and select the ad formats I liked. Since I've discovered AdSense, I've been filled with delight. So earn more with matching ads and you too can discover how. Just visit google.com slash AdSense now. 
A rose by any other name would still be the same. Move over, Shakespeare. You need to differentiate yourself from your competition. Do it by aligning yourself with a company who has earned the trust of Jupiter Media, the NHL, and Lionsgate Films, among others. Moniker.com is the most secure ICANN accredited register on the planet, offering you domain registration, hosting, domain sales, and acquisition services. Wrap that up with 24-7 support. That's your winning combination. M-O-N-I-K-E-R.com. More than a name. It's no secret. Linking with relevant sites is a dynamic way to enhance site traffic. Avoid using unethical practices to promote your website. Obtain quality, relevant links with linksmanager.com. Since 1999, linksmanager.com has been the leading choice for managing link campaigns by thousands of websites. Editor-based link management software makes relevant link exchange ethical, fast, and easy. No software to install. Free unlimited support. Try linksmanager.com free for 30 days. Accept no limitations. Captain's log. Stardate 8130.3. Starship Enterprise on training mission to Gamma Hydra, Section 14. Identify for retina scan. It's Monty Khan. Khan, you've got Genesis. But you don't have me. You are going to kill me, Khan. You're going to have to come down here. The masses are starting to get online and get their identities and find new ways to make money in the marketplace, and I think they're all aiming their guns. You have a tendency to express ideas in military terms. This is a social occasion. Well, they are party animals. They do throw uh, some of the best parties in our industry, that's for sure. Evaluation, Mr. Fox. Crude methods, but effective. We posted our booth up next to uh, a booth that's giving away beer. How appropriate that is for you guys, huh? Hey, I've taken care of everything. Now, all y'all got to do is just relax. Doctor's orders. If I don't see you next week, I'll see you in two weeks from now. Same time, same place. Khan, how do we know you'll keep your word? I promise you. Be the master of your domain. Domain, 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 domain. Don't incur the wrath of Khan. Listen to Domain Masters, Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on webmasterradio.fm. Now, back to AdTech Connect, only on webmasterradio.fm. Here's your host. Welcome back. Thanks for staying tuned. This is Susan Bratton, and I have Tom Hespos, president of Underscore Marketing on the line. Hello. How are you today? I'm pretty good. Yourself? Very well, very well. So we're having a good discussion. Mark Steffens was just on, and we were talking about um, touchpoint stacking and uh, some of his favorite clients. So that was a good conversation and a great a great segue for you and I to talk about media and marketing innovation. Uh, so let's, let's just talk a little bit about, for those who might not know who you are, the all three people in the universe left that haven't either read your ClickZ articles, read your online spin articles, been a part of the old timers list, seen your blog at hespos.com, seen you speak at every industry show known to mankind, then they might have not met you, and you are with Underscore Marketing, the president. So tell us about that. Sure. Um, well, Underscore is um, we're a media agency, uh, but we're also uh, you know a strategy shop as well, and moving into some of these other uh, great uh, new developing areas that come along with uh, with Web 2.0, which is something we're very very excited about. 
So you started out at Y&R, Young and Rubicam, and, and then you yeah. had a, had many positions over the years. You're, you're not a young man, you're not an old man, but you've been at K2 and Blue Marble and Mazina Brown. What made you decide to start your own agency? Were you just so unbelievably crazy? Or you think there's an opportunity? Well, it, it was a great opportunity for us because we started the company back in '02 when um, things weren't looking so hot for the online marketing industry, and a lot of great talent hit the streets. So we were able to get a bunch of people together that uh, we probably couldn't have pulled together under one banner, uh, and then got them all working for Underscore. And uh, you know, since things have turned around as we knew that they would, um, you know, it was just a tremendous opportunity uh, for us, and uh, we're glad that we took that risk. <laughs> and how many people are at Underscore these days? Uh, six right now on site. We have another couple in another office. And who are who? You have a couple of partners that are also famous. Is that right? Uh, I'd say the most famous one we've got here would be Eric Porez, who is a um, you know guy, xagency.com guy. He's uh, he's my other partner in this, and uh, he's done a, a number. He's had a number of different gigs in the online marketing industry, just like me. He's worked for Time Warner. He's worked at agency.com. He's uh, done a lot of live events online, and uh, this is his kind of uh, you know second or third foray into online marketing, so uh, you know, I'm happy to have him with, uh, with me as well. And live events, having the experience to do that is going to become, I think, more and more of a fabulous uh, uh, knowledge base to offer to clients, because I think clients are starting to create their own content, and having live events where you can generate some real interest and enthusiasm around them has to be one of the things you're working on in your strategy. Well, yeah, interest um, uh, you know, in the content as well, but also how people rally around that content and how people form, uh, have formed communities around uh, issues and, and content on the web. That's, a, of course, uh, just a tantamount importance to us. Uh, we're really working hard uh, with our clients to understand and, and coach them a bit on online community and uh, how that works, and uh, so far I've been pretty successful with it. And I know you're trying to spin this conversation into conversational marketing, and we're going to get to that because I know that's something that's really important to you too. Tell our listeners, though, today who some of your clients are just so they can get a level set. Sure. Well, um, on the media buying side and the strategy side, uh, we're the agency of record, the online agency of record for sharing Plow and their consumer health care products. So, uh, you know, Claritin, Lotrim, and all the brands that uh, come out of sharing Plow that are, Plow that are sold over the counter. Uh, we work with uh, Zingy. They are a uh, mobile marketing company. Mm-hmm. Um, we work with a company called The MathWorks. Uh, we work with about... Um, about a dozen different agencies as well, sort of providing their uh, their online marketing and their online media capabilities. So we're working with you know probably six agencies that are active at any given time with different projects. So we take kind of an intellect inside approach sometimes to um, to working with clients. Hey, talk about what Zingy is. That's a pretty new company. I've just seen some proposals from them, and uh, so I think listeners would be interested in hearing about that. They're a great company. They've um, they've been phenomenal in terms of uh, their B two B business. They power the, uh, the the channels, the uh, downloads of ringtones and wallpapers and other phone content. They power those channels for a lot of um, a lot of big players out there like MTV and VH1. Uh, but they're a larger you know mobile marketing company. You're uh, probably aware that they they purchased Vindigo and have integrated that into their uh, their suite of offerings. But uh, really, they're 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 about. Uh, they're all about mobile entertainment, and it's a terrific company to work for. What do you think about marketers um, if they have the right content? What do you think about marketers moving their assets 
on to the mobile platform through Zingy or some of the other companies that are are doing this kind of thing. I think it's important. Yeah, I think it's very important because I think a lot of people out there are expecting that uh, the content is available on the mobile platform. A lot of them expect that they can get the content pretty much anywhere, the applications or, or what have you. Uh, so I, I believe delivering on that expectation is important, but at the same time, we have to think about you know what's appropriate to have on a mobile device, and uh, you know are we trying to fit too much onto mobile devices and make things uh, you know take take things um, onto the mobile channel that are they're too complicated for somebody with a handset. I mean, that's all got to be taken into consideration. But mm-hmm. by and large, I think it's, it's very important that we get things on the mobile. I'm, all, I'm on the board of a company that's zingy-like, not the, not the same thing, but it's a company called MBuzzy. And it's a social media site for people who want to share their content across the mobile platform. So if I want to send you a video that I took on my phone to your phone, or I want to send you a picture, or I've created my own ringtone on MBuzzy and I want to send it to you like a funny song or something I've created, I can send it to you phone to phone. And I just think it's a fascinating idea, and that's why I was interested in Zingy as well, because it's very similar. It's fascinating, you know, particularly when you look at the uh, the media consumption habits of the younger set. I mean, I see a lot of them walking around, uh, you know, not even looking up, just kind of looking <laughs> into their handsets and, uh, you know, interacting with things like ringtones and, uh, you know, mobile blogging and things of that nature. And, uh, you know, it's, it's part of their consumption habits. It's part of what they've grown up with, and thus it's part of their expectations. So I think, uh, you know, a lot of the companies that are getting into that space uh, and helping to enable the connection between human beings through the mobile platform. I, I think that's just great. It, it's funny for me because my job as the chair of ad tech is to, every, every show I do, and we do seven a year now, but every show that I program, I program it differently. And I think about, okay, what's going on at this moment in time? Or, or like right now, I'm programming the New York show for November, and it's, what, June. And I've, I've got to kind of look out into the future and say, what are people going to be really hot for in the next six months? And what's trailing off? Like, what, what conversations are, what have we mastered? What's kind of not that interesting anymore? And what's the new shiny, fuzzy thing? Because for me, it's always about programming the newest shiny, fuzzy thing. And um, I, I've been working with the Mobile Marketing Association for, you know, since their inception, they've been helping me program this stuff. Because I, I can't keep deep tap roots in every single thing about our industry. It's impossible, as you know. I don't think anybody can. It's Nobody close can. to impossible. Yeah. You just admit defeat and ask for help. That's my motto. <laughs> but uh, th- So mobile marketing, this is my honest, like this is the real truth, is that I've never, for, for the last X number of years, I, I've always done you know, a couple of sessions on mobile marketing at every show, and I've always had the case studies, and here's the ecosystem. and this is the, For the first time this year, I think to myself, damn, mobile marketing is interesting. There's a lot. I, you know, my, my filter is always, I'm a marketer, do I care? And, and all of a sudden, I think to myself, there's a lot of stuff in mobile marketing that's a good opportunity, that's innovative, something that I like to call tech novelty. You know, the early marketers in who leverage these new concepts and, and can scale them can really extend their brands that more than their competitors by being in that space at that right time. And I just think mobile is, you know, for the first time, you know, I feel like I've been given it like lip service for 10 years. And finally, mm-hmm. I feel like it's my, my enthusiasm for it is authentic, that it's really there now. What do you think about well, that? Yeah, mine too. I, I think you hit the nail right on the head. Uh, it's just really starting to get very exciting now. I mean, 
when I used to think of mobile marketing, maybe you know, say two, three years ago, I used to think of it as something that was uh, you know a good deal of vaporware. Uh, a lot of people coming in and pitching us on mobile ideas for our clients, but yeah. uh, not a lot that was compelling because uh, it really couldn't be executed, or there really wasn't the audience behind it. Um, and, and now it, it's really it seems to have hit the mass market, and uh, a lot of the applications and a lot of the things that uh, enable us to share. Uh, a lot of our ideas and our, our, our photos and all these things that you mentioned yep. uh, remotely via the mobile platform are, are, have come to fruition. They have significant audience behind them, and uh, now we can start to get really excited about it. And here, okay, this is a totally embarrassing, stupid thing. Um, my husband and I went to the Madonna concert about two weeks ago here in San Jose. She was unbelievably hot, and we had two, the like, front row seat and number two seat right where her disco ball dropped down onto the stage and then it opened like space pod and the hottest woman in the world walked out and started singing. It was just <laughs> unbelievable. And the thing that I noticed that totally struck me, other than the fact that you could bounce a quarter off those buns, was the whole audience was shooting video of her. The whole audience had their trios. I mean, there must have been... You know, there's 20,000 people. I bet there were 5,000 people holding trios up, taking video of Madonna coming out of her disco ball space pod. It was, <laughs> I mean, and they weren't taking pictures. You could see they were holding their phones and, you know, panning on her. Usually they frown upon that sort of thing. Um, I remember, uh, you know, getting some nasty looks for a bouncer from a bouncer at a Van Halen concert a few years ago uh, when I was taking some photos. But uh, you know, again, I think that's part of the expectation now uh, that yeah. people can bring the camera phones, they can bring their, uh, you know, their their portable video recorders that uh, you know happen to be in, embedded with phones, and uh, you know, basically take them everywhere they go and share their lives with other people. It's it's a well, very human way of connecting. Well, it's interesting, too, because the, my tickets, my, my Madonna tickets said no cameras. Yet mm -hmm. what they can't do is take away, you're not going to take away your phones. So welcome to the new world. <laughs> uh, by the way, Van, Van Halen concert. So that reminds me of being a huge stoner, which reminds me that you're getting married on 420. <laughs> <laughs> you read that on my blog. Uh -oh. I was reading your blog. <laughs> now, did you get yeah. married? Was that an old post, or are you getting married April 20th, 2007? Uh, April 20th, 2007. We actually just set the date. Um, I, yeah, I asked my girlfriend last Saturday to marry me, and um, she this agreed. Last, and, oh, uh, my God, I am so temporal here. Fantastic. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's pretty terrific, and uh, yeah, we, we you know actually walked down uh, to the uh, you know the church, the church parish. As we were walking out of there, we realized that we had just set the date for April twentieth, and I, I just made the connection on my way back to my truck in the parking lot, and I said, "Oh my God, we just put it on four twenty. <laughs> Isn't that like International Stoners Day or something like that?" And, it's uh, definitely yeah. International Stoners Day. And what I thought was <laughs> the cutest thing on your blog was that you said that you are going to serve Cool Ranch Doritos at your <laughs> okay, that was a joke. That's like the international stoner food. <laughs> <laughs> that is so funny. Well, maybe we should explain what 420 is for those listeners who might not be stoners. I don't know that there <laughs> yeah. are any, but maybe there are. 
I, I just linked to the Wikipedia page from my blog, but uh, there's a there's a number of different rumors sort of circulating around as to how it uh, how it came into being. But basically, um, uh, a lot of the rumors deal with uh, I think four you know four o'clock and twenty minutes as being the time to uh, to light one up, <laughs> and uh, that's I think where the rumor came from. And um, you know there are a lot of people out there in the stoner culture who identify with four twenty, and if you ask any of them why, they kind of give you a shrug because uh, they really don't understand it but uh, it's, it's one of those things that kind of gets passed around in the underground <laughs> or they heard it and they forgot or they heard it and they forgot or they heard it and they forgot <laughs> <laughs> alright so I uh, have something else I want to ask you you made a bold statement recently in one of your articles and I like a bold statement Thomas you said I'll, I'm going to read it here I'm going to quote you um Let's see. Social tagging is bigger than the blogosphere and even the citizen publishing movement. So that's, you know, that, I mean, everybody's in love with blogging. Tagging, not so much, right? I mean, I'm not sure everybody's doing that yet. Maybe what we should do is define social tagging so that everybody's on the same page and then say, you know, explain why you'd make that ludicrous and ridiculous statement. Well, sure. Um, and it, <laughs> oh, sure. On its face, it is a ludicrous <laughs> statement. I hope to explain it to you in a I'm second. But you um, basically, uh, you know, there's a lot of people out there who are, you know, tagging, uh, you know, human beings who are tagging content basically with their own custom labels. Um, they could do it through a number of different social tagging sites. I think Delicious is probably the one that's the most popular. That but, um, between that and between, um, you know, people with their own blogs who are assigning custom tags to all the content that they produce, basically what's happening here is all the independent content that's being produced or that's being linked to uh, is, is having its own custom labels kind of applied to it. And in a very democratic fashion, what we're coming up with is a way to categorize a lot of this, you know, what others call consumer-generated content, I call, you know, as part of the citizen publishing movement. But uh, all this new content that's coming out is getting categorized and cross-referenced in a number of different ways. And I find that space just absolutely fascinating because I think search tools and a number of other things are going to be able to leverage that meta, uh, metadata basically to categorize a lot of this stuff and, and uh, you know, really get to, the, uh, to the, the root of how the web works. And, uh, you know, what I meant by the statement that it was bigger than the blogosphere is that, you know, a lot of people, when they talk about social tagging, they think of it in terms of blog posts. And that's really not what it's all about. It's, it's about tagging all different kinds of content uh, and it, it can happen anywhere, and with the right tools, um, you know, all the content that's out there can be categorized uh, and categorized by different users in different ways. So um, I, I think this way of kind of, you know, in a very human way, uh, putting this categorization to all the content that's out there is a very powerful thing and something certainly that people at companies like mine have to be watching very, uh, very closely. So right now, what, one of the things that I say about tagging is that it's like taking a little piece of your own content and putting keywords on it. Don't you think that's a good way to explain it? Yeah, at its most yeah. simple level, sure, absolutely. Yeah. And so one thing about tagging is that it's just starting to happen. If you look at the tag cloud on Delicious right now, which is everybody and everybody and what they're tagging kind of rolled up into the top words. So it's like the buzz index for the things people are tagging, what words they're tagging. A lot of the stuff that's still up there are words like Linux, Ajax, programming, reference, web 2.0, web design, web dev, you know. There's something mm -hmm. on there called Ubuntu, which I must click on today and see what that is, because that's something I've never <laughs> heard of. But it's still very much a, 
you know, uh, well, JavaScript life hacks. It's still very much uh, in the tech community. It hasn't it hasn't rolled through the consumer world yet. So this thing that we're talking about, be, tagging being bigger than blogging, I, I agree with you actually. And I was only just giving you a hard time for fun um, <laughs> and entertainment because this is an entertainment show. I hope to God it's funny every once in a while. Um, that, that blog, there will only be so many people who are willing to blog, but everybody's going to tag with their photos and, and all the things they do, right? I think so, yeah. And, and when, you, when you look to the future, you know, from the marketing perspective, somebody like me has a very difficult time today uh, trying to locate niche audiences online and try to, trying to market to people that you know, fit very niche criteria. And if you were to you know, look at some of the more obscure tags out there and find some you know, different keywords and tags that apply to content uh, that's of interest to a niche audience, suddenly you've got a way to get to those people or at least get to the content that they're most interested in. Uh, now, I'm not tail, saying right? that it needs to be plastered with advertising, but I am saying that that's a, a great way for you know, people to kind of self-identify. And uh, you know, if that happens, then we have ways that we can market to them. Well, and really what that is is also the long-tail concept, getting into mm-hmm. those very specific vertical niche kinds of places, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So here's another thing. Did you happen to read, this is a really long shot, I'll, I'll just ask, but do you read New York Times Magazine? Uh, I tend not to, unless I see the articles posted somewhere else online. Okay. Well, there, I did. I read it every week because I love it. And there, in one of the recent issues, there was an article called Scan This Book by Kevin Kelly. Kevin's a Wired writer, and he's written a couple of books. He's a super cool dude. And he wrote an article about how Google and, and other companies, a lot of companies in China, et cetera, are scanning the text of all books and bringing them on the web. And then he talked about how overlaying tagging and links and connections to the content is going to make the the world's knowledge, ex, you know, just explode at, a, at at an order of magnitude more than it has just from having you know Google connect the world's websites together. Yeah, I mean, when you just think about something like that, like um, I've been actually discussing something very close to that concept with a bunch of friends of mine in the marketing business. And uh, one of the things that, that we came up with is this notion that information itself is really becoming commodified. And, uh, you know, as that's happening, what's becoming valuable, you know, if you look to, if you consider the information age, the, uh, the third wave, as Alvin Toffler described it. I love uh, Alvin you know, Toffler. What, what's the fourth wave? Well, you know, I think the, the fourth wave ends up being, you know, the lens through which you look at this information. Uh, you know, if information is going to be completely commodified like that, we're going to have the text of books online. We're going to have, uh, you know, all these digital assets online and easily accessible by everybody. The, the way it gets linked and the way it gets uh, looked at and processed is really what's going to deliver value in the coming years. Nice. Really nice. Wow. That's I love that whole concept. It's, it's like the lens through which all content is filtered. How you, how you sculpt the content that's available to you, that's going to be, and the things that help you do that, that's going to be the fourth wave? I believe so, yeah. But did I say I'm that right? I'm betting on it. <laughs> I'm betting on you, Tom. Way to go. All Thank right, you. so I know what you want to talk about is conversational media, right? Because that's what you're like totally into right now. Is that right? I'm into it, yeah. I'm, I'm very know. into it. And um, it's one of those things that I've just been writing about on a, on a pretty continuous basis for at least the past six months. But this notion of um, 
you know, reflecting a lot of the things really that, that came to light in the Clue Train Manifesto. I'm not sure if you've read that. I know uh, of it. I haven't slogged through it, but I, I'm familiar with it. But you really ought to. Um, you know, back you know a few years ago, I used to consider a lot of the Clue Train crowd very annoying. The people who uh, were really into this book because they had sort of an attitude of, uh, you know, the, the big marketers. They really have to evolve, or they're going to die. Uh, they've got to you know become uh, very uh, aligned with the principles that are outlined in that book, uh, or they were just going to immediately die. And we all knew that that wasn't going to happen. But you know, one of the things that I did take away from that book, and and one of the things that I very uh, much believe in is this notion that, that marketers really have to learn how to connect directly with the marketplace. Uh, and they've got to do it through all these social structures that are, are popping up online that you know have existed online for a number of years. You know, message boards, blogs, uh, discussion lists. Uh, they really need to be speaking directly to the marketplace because uh, you know people within companies are already doing that already on an unofficial basis, or you know sometimes officially, like as in the case of Robert Scoble and what he's doing for Microsoft. Well, in but, his new uh, book, his new book is called Naked Conversations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, have you read yeah, that? Yeah, a lot of writers have really taken this concept and run with it, and we've kind of developed our own version over here. Uh, you know, we're calling it conversational marketing, uh, as uh, other people in the space, and uh, we're really blowing it out as a practice area with an underscore, and uh, working with a number of clients and, and teaching them how to abandon a lot of this, you know, marketing speak and a lot of this uh, the, the broadcast practices of marketing uh, and adopting real one-to-one strategies and, uh, you know, real conversation with the marketplace. Well, and I I would point, because you can't, because it would be too self-serving, but I can for you. (laughs) You you have written a few articles recently. One of them is um, Embrace a Loss of Control. One is The Scale of Individual Conversations. And then the third, which I thought was really good, because you addressed one of the biggest fears that marketers have. I think there are two fears that marketers have around the whole conversational media concept. One is, how, how, what do I going to have to do? Put a million people in my company to deal with a million people having individual conversations with us? Like, how does that scale? And then the other one is, what about those people who hate us and are, you know, the, the squeaky wheel, negative vibe people, what do we do with them? Your article, What to Do with the Haters, literally lays out the do's and don'ts in a bullet fashion for the roadmap for dealing with this issue. So good for you for putting a stake in the ground around that. Thanks. I appreciate that. That's um, you know, one of the things I strive for in my writing is just to try to lay it out as simply as possible, to, you know, to write how I talk and, and really just make it in very simple language uh, so that you know, we can all get on the same page with regard to that stuff. Uh, exactly. Regarding your first point, though, I wanted to address that, you know, the scale all right, of the and then our time's up. Time's up after this one. So address this last point for me, and then we got to the, uh, you know, addressing the scale, uh, that's one of the things that we're doing here is we're developing some tools that will be able to, um, you know, basically pluck relevant conversations out of the blogosphere and off of message boards and point people towards them so that they can see what people are talking about and where. Uh, you know, it's similar to some concepts that already exist, but um, we felt we needed a tool that uh, would do it properly. So that's one of the things that we've been working on here at Underscore, and that's going to form the, uh, the backbone, I think, of this conversation conversational marketing practice. So the tool is different than things that are already out with Buzz Index and Teleseek, blah, 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 ad nauseum? Well, those things do a really great job of sort of gauging the level. What they don't do a good job of is drilling into the individual conversations and giving people a pointer there and a way to kind of manage it over time. Well, manage is the wrong word. To, To 
sort of deal with it over time. All right, good. Well, so you're getting into the technology business by creating some tools. Reluctantly, yes. I never well, thought but I'd you know what? Software that's... development business, but here I am. <laughs> but Tom, that's what's going to make you a rich man. You know, the agency <laughs> business is never going to make you a rich man. <laughs> true, Not true. Not margin. Well, that's great. I have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much for Likewise. coming on the show. Would you like to come Thanks to New York Ad Tech and, and spend more time with our listeners? Oh, absolutely. That'd be terrific. That'd be great. We'd love to have you. Good. Well, we're going to sign off with Tom. And uh, next week, we have the marketing mashup with Karna Crawford from Coca-Cola, John Epstein, the new CEO of Double Fusion, and Hunter Hastings, one of our keynotes for for the Chicago show from the EMM Group. And uh, I will look forward to talking to you next week. Have a great day. This is Susan Bratton with AdTech Connect. If you think Webmaster Radio.fm is smoking now, well, you ain't seen nothing yet, man. Woo! All right. <laughs> September 15, 16, and 17, it's a Search Bash Jamaica. Come to Jamaica for one of the biggest bashman party. Come rub elbows with the web's greatest marketing minds. <laughs> Dude, that's great. You and a friend lying on the beach, sipping rum punch, and get a full body all around. Mm. It is Irie, man. <laughs> Find all the info at searchbash.com. Air, transportation, hotel, photos, and registration. Come hang out with the coolest people online at digital marketing. Yeah, we be jamming, man. Jamming with your Webmaster Radio show host. This is Greg. I need a beer in Island. Hook up with some old friends. <laughs> it's a life experience you'll never forget. Excellent. Search Bash. Jamaica. In case you haven't been listening, I'll repeat myself. It's a happening thing in a Negril, Jamaica. To register and get all pertinent information, go to searchbash.com. Seize and seclus, get out and come down to Jamaica Searchbash 2006. Hosted by a webmasterradio.fm. Like now, I'm ready to go.